This is recorded in the Gospel of John, where Pilate paraded Jesus in front of a crowd, and he said in a very condescending and pejorative way, a demeaning way, he said, behold your king. But I'm going to take that quote and use it in a worshipful, majestic way. Behold your king. Next week, we'll talk, let me put our titles upcoming next week. Your king rules. Two weeks from today, Palm Sunday, your king is a lamb. And then on Easter Sunday, your king makes appearances. And today, your king is a friend of sinners. Six times, count them, six times in the Gospels, Jesus was critiqued and criticized because of the company that he kept. He was a friend of the tax collectors and sinners. And one time Jesus even quoted what people said about him. They said in Luke chapter 7, there we go, they call me a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Was Jesus a glutton? No. Was Jesus a drunkard? No. Was he a friend of those who were far from God? Answer, absolutely yes. Now listen, Jesus did not act like them, but he liked them. One more time, he did not act like them, but he liked them. Jesus indeed was a friend of sinners, and he wore that mantle. He did not deny it. Now my question to you is, how was he a friend to sinners? Did he just go along to get along? Live and let live? Was he called a friend of sinners because he liked a good party? You know, togas, animal house style. Is that Jesus? You yuck it up with the crowd? I submit to you indeed Jesus was a friend of sinners in a very redemptive and purposeful and beautiful way. I have four points this morning. Here's the first one. Jesus is a friend to sinners, first of all, because Jesus elicits a good kind of guilt. A good kind of guilt. There is such a thing as good guilt. You might hear somebody say to you that all guilt is bad. If you cannot feel appropriate guilt, you are a sociopath. You don't want to be within 50 miles of someone who cannot feel appropriate guilt. They're a psychopath. They're dangerous. Now, it is true that there's toxic guilt. There's negative guilt. Sometimes people feel guilty for things that are perfectly innocent. They feel guilty for driving a nice car. They feel like they have to overly explain it. They feel guilty for living in a, a, a nice house. You've got to overly explain it and defend it. You don't have to feel guilty for things that are perfectly innocent. I feel guilty because you slept in later one, one morning. Sometimes people feel guilty over things that they've confessed and brought to God. They've come to Christ. They've 
They, they brought these things before the Lord. God's forgiven them, redeemed them, but they won't let themselves off the hook. Sometimes people feel guilty for things that are not their fault. Sadly, sexual abuse victims and survivors are classic examples of that kind of negative guilt that you have to put through. Sometimes people who were molested as children feel like it was their fault, not your fault. Jesus never wants you to own guilt that doesn't belong to you. But what's often overlooked today is that there is a healthy kind of guilt that's like a warning sign. It's like a little warning light in your car. You don't take a bandage and cover it up so you know, don't have to see it. That little warning light is there to get your attention appropriately. And healthy guilt is designed to get our attention because something is amiss. And let's respond to it in a healthy, redemptive way. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they felt shame. Why? They were guilty. And they needed to make a response to God, and God made a response to them. Some of you are familiar with Viktor Frankl, wrote the classic book, Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl himself was a Holocaust survivor. And as a teacher, he, he often talked about tragic optimism. He said there's a tragic triad in life. Pain, death, guilt. And he says if a person will deal with the reality of pain, the reality of death, and the reality of guilt in a healthy way, that can spur a person on towards meaning and purpose in life. Death lets me know I'm not, a, I'm not God. There's something beyond this. Pain, guilt. And talking about guilt, he said this, through guilt, people have the potential to change for the better. Healthy guilt is a gatekeeper and a boundary marker. It helps us discover where we should not go in life, what we should not do. And it helps us to make amends when we've hurt others. It helps us find our way back toward what is right and how to repair those torn portions in our own life. I suggest to you that Jesus Christ is a friend to sinners like me because he elicits a good kind of guilt that can be dealt with in grace. Now, Jesus is getting your attention. Let me just list three or four ways. First of all, through your conscience, your conscience. You see, if you've never gone to church before, even people who have no sort of religious background at all, we have this inner conscience, this inner system where we just know certain things are right and certain things are wrong. In fact, people who uh, debate the, the existence of God, they talk about this as the moral argument. Where did this inner sense of right and wrong come from? Now, sometimes that inner computer system can be infected. It can get a virus. It can be warped by culture. 
It can be seared, but it's, but it's there. We, we have it, all right? Did you know that our government has what is called a conscience fund? It's been around since 1811 for people who feel like they've ripped off the government, they've stolen from the government, they've frauded the government, and, they, and there is a conscience fund where people can send in money, mostly anonymously, to make amends for their fraud. One well-known letter to the Conscience Fund reads as follows. Dear Internal Revenue Service, I have not been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax. Enclosed, you will find a cashier's check for $1,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. Christ convicts us through our conscience, through Scripture, you know. You read the Bible, you listen to Bible teaching. The, the Bible, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, I wouldn't even know what it means to covet had God's law not said, do not covet. There's a better way. And so when you sit, so the Scriptures do what? They teach us what to believe, what not to believe how to behave, how not to behave. And Scripture will convict us. Thirdly, you're convicted just through presence. When you're in the presence of God, there's something in theology that's called the push-pull of God, the push-pull of the gospel. Think of Isaiah in the Old Testament. He's in the presence of God, and what does he say? Woe is me. I can't stand here. I want to be close to God, but I'm not worthy. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament wants to be close to Jesus, but when he realizes, whoa, he's much more than a fisherman, what does he do? He says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Lord, I want you to pull me close to you, but when I sense your presence, who you are, your wonder, your greatness, your grandeur, I am a sinful person. And then others, sometimes a good friend, a godly friend, will say, Ronnie, I think you need to be aware of something. These are all instruments of your friend Jesus who elicits not the kind of guilt that's chronic and pathological and ongoing and you can never be out from under its cloud, but he elicits good gift, good guilt that gets your attention to something that needs to be addressed. And that leads to the second point. Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners because he stresses the value of repentance. And please don't turn me off now because the word repentance <laughs> is a great word. Are you listening? Repentance is a great word. It's not a bad word. A lot, of pe a lot of people think, they hear the word repentance, it means you better get your act together. Do you know what the word repentance actually means? It means to change your mind. The Greek word is metanoia. Meta, change, noia, mind. 
change your mind. You know, it's a good thing to be able to change your mind. Only a foolish person never changes their mind. Only an incredibly stubborn person never changes their mind about anything. You change your mind all the time. You change your mind about your diet, about certain foods, about restaurants, about shoes, about style, about your car, about where you might go to school. And sometimes we have to change our mind about God, about Jesus. Repentance is an absolutely great word. Henry Cloud is a best-selling author. He wrote a book a few years ago called Never Going Back. But you know what? But he wanted to title the book Repentance. (laughs) But his publishers wouldn't let him title it Repentance. They said, no, no, no. People will see that and they'll be turned off. He said, it's a great word. It's a fantastic concept. We're able to change our mind to something better. He said, but people won't get that. It's a great word. Now, let's read the the scripture from Luke 5. Jesus was asked, here you go. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So, there again. Why do you do this, Jesus? Again, Jesus did not act like them, but he liked them. And Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. To repentance. I submit to you that one of the reasons Jesus ate with people who were far from God, and one of the reasons there were people who were far from God and who knew it, and and that they wanted to eat with Jesus as well, is because Jesus was asking them to change their mind about their understanding of God. Gang, changing your mind is a wonderful gift. We do it all the time. Martha and I, we've gone to Disney World several times. We actually went there on our honeymoon, August 1980. It's a great place to go on your honeymoon, not during the month of August. But there you go. And then during the early years of our marriage, we lived 45 minutes from Disney World. So we went all the time. And we've gone back several times over the years with our family, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And a few years ago, Disney opened a new ride at their Epcot Park called Mission Space. And their aim, they said, was, to, uh, that was for Mission Space to, the, to be the most intense ride Disney had ever produced. The most intense ride in any Disney park. And, uh, and after riding Mission Space, I would say that they uh, uh, masterfully succeeded in that aim to make it incredibly uh, intense. Uh, the ride is indoors. You sit in a little pod. 
your face is on a screen and, and it's like you are on a mission to Mars and beyond. You blast off, you have a, a, a gravity slingshot around the moon and you have a crash landing somewhere and you finally make it back home. But you're actually in a centrifuge that is twirling you around. So it's not, you're not just watching a video, you're feeling the G-forces. Now, since they first opened, they've, they've toned it down. They, they have one version that really is just a video. They have another version that you feel about two and a half Gs. But when it first started, it was even more than two and a half Gs. And I wrote the on, I, I wrote the on steroids uh, version of Mission Space. I did it with my son and son, son-in-law. So we're there. They say, Dad, Dad, you know, we, 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 got, we got to do this. Let's do it. It's great. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all in. I like rides, rock and roller coaster, Space Mountain, love it all. Let's do Mission Space. We get on and we get off. They walk off. I wobble off. We, we get out there. They said, that is awesome. Let's do that again. I said, you guys have a great time. You go right again. You see that bench? I'll be seated, seated on that bench. Hopefully, still vertical when you guys, when you guys uh, uh, come out. You know what I did? I repented. That's what I did. <laughs> I repented. I changed my mind about something. Jesus is eating with so many quote-unquote, tax collectors and sinners, people who were far from God, and they knew it. Now, let me stop for a moment, a little aside. Please do not overly romanticize this, that all the people who were, quote-unquote, sinners and far from God, that all of them wanted to be with Jesus. That's not true. That's not true. Jesus had plenty of enemies Plenty of critics, plenty of opponents, people of people, plenty of people who wanted him dead. But there were a number of people who actually wanted to listen to what Jesus had to say. By the way, Ron Ritchie is a well-known Bible teacher and author, and uh, uh, and he says when he's flying and someone asks him, uh, "What do you do for a living?" He says, if you want to shut down the conversation, just say, I'm a preacher or I'm a pastor. But he says, here's the way he answers the question. What do you do for a living? He says, I'm a teacher. And then people will say, what do you teach? And he says, I teach people about Jesus if they want to listen. Imagine Jesus at a dinner party, and people want to listen because Jesus says, I want you to change the way you think about God. Right now, you're far from God. You know it. You sense it. You feel it, and you think God has a short fuse. You think God doesn't want anything to do with you. You think your past is going to be your future, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm here to tell you, God likes you. God's for you. 
God wants a relationship with you. I want you to change the way you think about God. And if you'll do that, that's going to lead somewhere. And it's going to lead somewhere really, really good. Sometimes people will say, you know, I really don't want to be close to the church. I don't want to go to church because I just feel condemned. I don't want a conversation about Jesus. I feel condemned. May I tell you what the Bible says? The Bible says if you want to be condemned, just don't do anything. Everybody here is familiar with John 3.16, but you, do you know what John 3.17 and 18 say? Here you go. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn. What does the word condemn mean? Bring a death sentence. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn and bring a death sentence to you. What, why did he come? But to save the world. And how? Through him. Not through making Ronnie some ideal or you some Through Jesus. Verse 18. Whoever believes in, in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You want to be under an eternal death sentence? Just do nothing. You want a hell sentence? Eternal condemnation sentence? You're born under that. I mean, that's the bad news of the gospel. That's why the gospel is so offensive to people. That's the bad news of the gospel. You're born under a death sentence. The good news is the Son of God has come to redeem us and to rescue us and to save us to the uttermost. He took our punishment. And so we come to Christ in faith, in baptism. We become followers of Christ. God, the almighty judge, takes his gavel and says, you are sentenced not to death. You're sentenced to life, to eternal life. Jesus, your king, is a friend of sinners. He elicits good guilt. He shows us the importance of changing your mind about God very, very quickly. And he offers the promise of absolute, complete forgiveness. Absolute, complete forgiveness. Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Again, Jesus did not act like them, but he liked them. R.C. Sproul once said, let me put this quote up here, we're all recovering Pharisees, and we need to get over our tendency to frown only upon certain sins. The Pharisees, they could... You know, certain sins, they'd say, oh, boy, you know, that puts you in a category over here. 
but they were absolutely blind to themselves. Absolutely blind. But Jesus, when he wanted to talk about forgiveness, being a friend of sinners and forgiveness, he would often tell stories. And one of his best-known stories followed this particular accusation by the Pharisees. You know the story, the story of the prodigal son. I'm not going to go into detail. It's a story of a father who has two sons, but the younger son was overtly arrogant. He was entitled. He was disrespectful to his father, and he was completely clueless about the realities of life. And he behaved like a spoiled brat against a father who was a really good man. And that young boy runs away with his trust fund. He then loses his fortune, ends up down and out with a capital down and a capital out. And then with no other options available, he decides to run home and ask his dad, not for reinstatement to the family, but could I just have a job out on the back 40 because you're a good man and you're a good employer. Listen to Jesus tell the story, verse 20. So that boy got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, you bring the best robe. You put it on him. The best robe belonged to the father. You put a ring on his finger, the family credit card. You put sandals on his feet. You bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. You know that story of a father who runs. That boy couldn't change the past. But because of God's extravagant grace, they could change the story and the trajectory, and the past need no longer define us. We can move into God's redemptive future. Very quickly, I need to close. Let me move on to point number four, and, um, and it's simply this. Jesus invites you to himself. He's a friend of sinners. <laughs> he elicits good guilt, shows us the value of repentance, offers complete forgiveness and extravagant grace, and invites us into himself. Now, here's a scripture that's one of the most personal in all the Gospels. Listen to Jesus be so personal. Hang with me here for just a moment. Come to me. All, everyone, all, you're included, all, that big little word all, you're included. Come to me. Notice the personal touch here. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you, yoke, we'll come back to that, and learn from me. Become my follower. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest to your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. A yoke 
was that, was that older piece of equipment. It was a steering mechanism for a couple of animals. They would be tied together. In essence, they would be partners. Jesus says, be my partner. Partner with me. Be my friend. Let's walk together, and I want you learning from me over time. And you're going to see that my burden, my yoke, is not heavy. I'm not saying it doesn't weigh anything. Every yoke weighs something. But you're going to find mine lighter and better than any other. Let me ask our worship team, be making your way up here. And as they're doing so, I want to tell you just a, a, a little uh, account of something I used to do with my kids when they were, when they were younger. And my, my, my kids now are in their, are in their 30s. But when, when uh, Mary Beth and Ryan were small, sometimes we'd play a little game and I'd put some goodies in my hand. And it might be, you know, little pieces of candy. It might be a little toy, you know, something like that. And I, I'd have it out there, and I'd say, all right, Mary Beth, all right, Ryan, you know, you, if, you can, if you can pry my fingers open, you, you get the goodies in here. And, of course, they'd start and kind of go one finger at a, at a time. And, and, uh, and, and according to the rules of the game, once you get a finger open, you can't close it back. So, then they're, they're working on this, and, and eventually they get the hand open, and they're the goodies there, and they were jazzed. They, they were pumped about it. And if I might be so bold, and if I might be so arrogant, or this is what, it's going to sound this way anyway, my kids had something far better than a little trinket or a piece of candy in my hand. They had the hand of a father who was absolutely devoted to them. They had the hand of a father who was unswervingly in their corner with devotion and in an attempt to steer them in a good way. And when Jesus says, when you come to me, you get goodies but you get something beyond goodies. You get me. And our great God and King has an array of resources for you as his follower and child. Resources that are below you. Every place you take a step, they're there guiding you, helping you. Resources that are around you, the church, the Bible, the Holy Spirit. Resources that are above you resources that are ahead of you. And so Jesus says, you come to me. Come to me. I'm your friend. I am a friend even to sinners like Ronnie Norman. And let's walk together into a good future. So this Easter news, remember, it's for you, but it's not just for you. It's also for all the people around you. So in this Easter season, let's not take our light of Christ and hide it under a bushel. Let's share it.